0: I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll read for our sermon tonight the first five verses of that second chapter in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 2, beginning verse 1. This is God's Word. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God remains forever. Ever since I began preaching regularly, um, about ten years ago now, uh, in my first pastoral internship, I got a, uh, a quote from Charles Spurgeon Framed that was near my study, and it's been near my study ever since then. And uh, this is his uh, quote. The motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. Know Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again. Those words are a good haunting for me because it is always a temptation to preach Jonathan and not Jesus, and so that's why I keep it uh, near my desk as I uh, prepare every week. Spurgeon obviously has in mind that the text that we've looked at and also uh, what Paul's already said in um, chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Uh, Paul then would certainly concur with uh, Spurgeon's assessment of what makes for good preaching or what should happen to Christless preachers. Go home and never preach again. Uh, Paul would agree with that. However, what we find in our passage is more than just a motto for preaching. You know, Spurgeon says the motto of all true servants should be we preach Christ and him crucified. But we find more than a motto here. We actually find Paul's giving us some profound theology on how um, sermons work, how preaching works. He's showing us not only what Christ-centered preaching is, that's what we'll be talking about tonight, Christ-centered preaching. Uh, but he's showing us not only what it is, but why it works and what it leads to. So what Christ-centered preaching is, uh, why it works, and what it leads to. And so we're going to consider those things uh, tonight. First, what it is, and we see that what it is, it begins with a, a decision, a decision Paul says I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified so Christ centered preaching begins with a decision or we could say determination and it's the determination of Paul which is to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified so Paul's determination is the Son of God that's what he's determined to to put forward to present um, to say that he 's determined to know nothing other than Christ is not the same thing as Paul bearing his head in the sand and not addressing the pressing issues of the day or practical applications that are necessary to bring the message uh, you know to the home to the hearts of, of believers bring it home for them uh, sometimes preachers can hide behind uh, this This verse is an excuse for not dealing with with contemporary issues or significant things going on in the life of a congregation. Well, you know, we preach Christ. We don't deal with that kind of stuff. Uh, Sometimes maybe that is legitimate, sometimes maybe not. But the point that Paul is making implicitly, if not really explicitly, is that no matter the situation... No matter what the situation is, no matter what the crisis is, the contemporary crisis, no matter what your culture might be, Jesus is what you need. And that's why we preach Christ and him crucified. Because whatever you're dealing with, he's the answer. He's the solution, always and forever. Jesus is what we need, so that's what Paul preached. But notice that Paul doesn't just say, I preach Christ. It's not enough to preach Christ. You must preach Christ crucified. Plenty of churches will talk about Jesus, and they'll make him out to be something like an ethical instructor or, you know, kind of like a, um, a life coach, something like that. Maybe he's the, the epitome of, of love, what it means to love other people, and so he becomes an example. My former preaching professor, Dennis Johnson, has a book on Christ-centered preaching, and Dr. Johnson writes this. He says, it is possible to preach about Jesus And even mention grace in the process and yet be preaching the law, calling people to reform themselves with a little help from their heavenly friend. And such a message, it isn't preaching the gospel, but you're preaching Jesus really just as a means to tell people, be like this, be like this, be like this. And he can kind of help you on the way. Such a message, he says, breeds either self-deluded complacency, oh, I'm not that bad, or self-contemptuous despair, I'll never be good enough. That's what that kind of preaching can do. But to preach Jesus as an ethical instructor or as a life coach or as just your heavenly friend who's there to help you out, preaching that kind of Jesus isn't going to help you because that Jesus doesn't save you. That's not the Jesus that saves. That kind of Jesus can't do any good for helpless sinners like you and me because that's exactly what we are. We're sinners. And that's our problem. So preaching Jesus really and truly doesn't just preach Jesus in the abstract, but it preaches Jesus hanging on a cross, dying for your sins. For your sins. doesn't just preach about the life of Christ, but about his death to atone for the sins of people like you and me. So preaching Christ crucified deals honestly with the consequences of sin, which means talking about the wrath and the curse of God, Which every sin deserves, but it's all been laid on our Savior at the cross. Christ-centered preaching is cross-centered preaching. Christ-centered preaching is cross-centered preaching. And I I thought it could be helpful to just pause and and consider what does that kind of preaching do? What kind kind of effect does that have? And there are at least three things, certainly there are more, but there's at least three things that Christ-centered, cross-centered preaching will do. It will offend, but it will comfort, and it will sanctify. It will offend, it will comfort, and it will sanctify. First, it will offend. Paul has already said that in in this epistle, hasn't he? Uh, Look at uh, verses 22 and 23 of the previous chapter. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The cross was offensive to both Jews and Greeks for the same reason it's offensive to modern ears, and that's because it doesn't make any sense. How could it be that a man hanging naked for all the world to see and to ridicule and make fun of, how could that be the means of my salvation? I don't, no thank you, I don't want to be saved by that. I don't like that. That offends me. Where's, no, give me something to do. Give me a, give me a to-do list that I can check off. Give me Give me some uh, assignment that I can turn in to have graded. I, I would like to be able to show that I've done something. Where's the room for my accomplishments? Where's the room for my boasting? Well, that's the point, isn't it? God chose, as verse 27, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And, of course, the fallen human nature, which was birthed by pride, hates this. The cross is offensive to us because it doesn't make enough room for, for us in that sort of way. And then we, we might well ask the question, why does God seemingly want to offend us? Why does he choose this way? Could he not have determined another way for us to come to saving faith than through a message of a crucified Lord that is so hard to accept and, and offends our sensibilities, James Boyce asked that question, why does God seemingly want to offend us? And he gives this great answer. Quote, this is not the way a modern advertising executive would do it. He would try to make the gospel as attractive as possible. He would try to make it fit the felt needs of the day. That's the way to get a good hearing. This is the way to sell a product. Doesn't God understand the techniques of good marketing? The answer, of course, is that God knows exactly what he's doing. And what he is doing is to humble human pride, which is absolutely necessary if you or I or anybody else is to be saved. It is our pride that has gotten us into trouble in the first place. Pride is the very root of sin. There can be no salvation unless our pride is cut down, torn up by the roots, cast out. And that's what the gospel does. When pride is destroyed, then and only then are we ready to believe in Jesus And begin to build a life upon him. So why does God want to offend us? Because he loves us. He wants to save us. And he doesn't want us to get in the way of that. The cross offends our prideful sensibilities. Because it shines the light on Jesus and not on us. And so it humbles us. But that's what we need to be saved. It shines the light on Jesus and not on us. But in shining the light on Jesus... It also shines a light on our sin, doesn't it? That's another reason that the cross and preaching the cross can offend us. If we're talking about the crucifixion, we are by nature talking about sin. We are talking about what, it, what made Jesus have to go on the cross in the first place. Our weakness, our transgressions, our infractions of God's holy and just law. So preaching the cross will mean dealing with sin head on and nobody likes that. The liberal church has thrown out sin altogether. Even decades ago, uh, Richard Niebuhr recognized this with a pithy aphorism where he said that the liberal church, their message was a God without wrath, brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So that's what the liberal church preached. But it's not just the liberal church, right? We're all fine denouncing sin here tonight as long as it's the sin of those people out there. But as soon as... As soon as the preacher dares touch upon a sin in my life, well, that's when we go home and we have roast preacher for supper, right? And we say, can you believe what he said? Can you believe that? We're offended, right? And we take it out usually on the messenger. Why? Because the cross offends. None of us like being told we're sinners and that sometimes the way we live is sinful. If you are never offended in church, it could be that you go to a church where Christ is not preached as crucified Or it could be, you're not listening. So, preaching the cross makes us uncomfortable. It it offends us. It makes us uncomfortable. But paradoxically, on the other hand, it also comforts us tremendously. Preaching Christ crucified comforts us. Why is that? Because it's at the cross, and, and ultimately at the cross, preeminently at the cross, that I see God's love for me, sinner that I am. At the cross, I discover grace and mercy, overabundant grace and mercy, superabounding grace and mercy. For me, when Christ crucified is preached, it means the doctrines of reconciliation and peace with God, justification. It means those are preached as well. It means salvation is heralded. It means forgiveness of sins is declared. It means that everlasting life is laid down before us it really means good news good news and i want that don't you yes of course you do and you more than want it you need it we all need it i need to preach and i need to hear preached christ crucified not just christ christ crucified and so the redeemed don't see the cross as a burden but a blessing or in the words of a forgotten hymn by the father of scottish hymnody horatius bonar he has a wonderful hymn where he talks about the cross being a shade a spring a rest and a home he says oppressed by noonday's scorching heat to yonder cross i flee beneath its shelter take my seat no shade like this for me is that how you think of the cross is it a shade for you somewhere too to rest Beneath the cross, clear waters burst, a fountain sparkling free, and here I quench my desert thirst. No spring like this for me. It's the cross where you are sustained and satisfied. It's the cross where you want to spend all of your days. This final stanza, a stranger here, I pitch my tent beneath this spreading tree. Here shall my pilgrim life be spent. No home like this for me. That's how Christians view the cross. It's nothing we're embarrassed about. It's something we flee to, we repair to, we run to every day, over and over again. And we say, there's no home like this anywhere else for me. This is my home. The cross comforts us. But thirdly, Christ-centered, cross-centered preaching sanctifies us. That is, it actually changes us. It actually transforms us. When we are taught in the school or the classroom of the cross, we will live the Christian life in a cruciform way that will become will become shaped like the cross. Cruciform, that's what that means. We'll become conformed more and more to the image of our Savior. We won't be high and mighty. We'll be gentle and lowly, for we will see him as he is. Uh, we'll begin to evidence the graces that we've experienced. We'll begin to show um, those graces which we have received in the gospel. We'll be loving, merciful, forgiving, and all those other virtues that make a crucified Christ so lovely in the eyes of a Christian. We'll see that and we'll be transformed by it. And so that's why Pastor Paul is determined to know nothing besides Christ and not just Christ, but a crucified Christ. So that's what Christ-centered preaching is. It's a determination, it's a decision to be focused on the Son and when when a preacher does that, a second thing happens. There's a demonstration of the Spirit. The uh, uh, behind uh, Paul's preaching to know nothing but Christ is a demonstration in his preaching. Uh, verses three and four. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So the determination is the son, the demonstration is the Holy Spirit and God's power working through the Holy Spirit to affect change in the lives of hearers. And so Paul is saying that not only his message, but even his manner, his method was consistent with the weakness or the folly of God. Uh, this is a historical comment Paul's making. He's remarking on what his ministry actually looked like in Corinth when he was planting the church uh, that he's talking about. His time there, right? Verse 3, I was with you. This is what I was like when I was there. He's reminding the Corinthians, isn't he, how they were converted. Uh, The church was planted as a result of a ministry that was characterized by fear and, and trembling and weakness. It didn't have any of the marks of the culturally plausible, sophisticated, rhetorical work. It was an unlikely ministry, says one commentator, an unlikely ministry conducted by an implausible figure. When Paul says, when he had said already in verse 2 that he decided to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified, he is actually putting that in opposition to the rhetorical style that was recognized in the day of being attractive or powerful. Um, Paul, we know, was an educated man. So when he says, I know nothing other than Christ, it's not like saying he like, emptied himself of all knowledge. We know he's an educated man. Uh, he doesn't have anything against knowledge. He has a problem, though, when people flaunt their knowledge... And thereby, they put themselves in the way of the Christ that they're preaching. And he says, one way that I'm not going to do that is I'm going to just preach Christ in him crucified. So his preaching, therefore, meant it was not in accordance with the rhetorical flourishes of the day, the type of thing that the Greco-Roman world loved so much. Paul wasn't going to give a TED Talk, right? Something that everybody wanted to, could tune into, wanted to watch, and would send their friends on YouTube. Hey, check this out. This is so cool. No, he's going to present Christ. And when people are saved by that simple message of a a crucified Savior, the conclusion is clear. When people are saved by that, it must be a work of God, not man. That's what he means when he says, by doing this, I was actually demonstrating the Holy Spirit and his power. If people are actually transformed, then something is going on behind being entertained by a gifted speaker. We need to recalibrate our desires in life because the problem for many of us is the same problem as the Corinthians. We just want to be entertained. I just want to be entertained just to enjoy my evening. I just want to hear music I like or watch a show that will make me laugh or read a book that will keep me on the edge of my seat. That's all we want in life. Just be entertained. I don't want to be educated. I don't want to be informed. I don't want to be edified. I don't want to be exhorted. We want to be entertained. We just want to binge shows. We can't survive being away from one screen or another. right? For more than 30 seconds, all of a sudden we feel like we're in the dark ages. That feeds into a celebrity culture. The most important people are the ones we see on those screens. And uh, we call them influencers. We want to be like them. But then we shape our affections In those ways, we teach ourselves implicitly, subtly, um, subconsciously, that this is what it means to have the good life, to be like what I'm watching, what I'm reading, what I'm listening to. But none of that is true. What we need most is not to be entertained, but to be transformed. Men and women can entertain you. Only the Holy Spirit can transform you. And he's pleased to do that through... Preaching, and not just any preaching, preaching Christ crucified, presenting a simple Savior, over and over again. That actually changes us. Paul said, Corinthians, that's, that's how you got into the church. That's how you became believers. That's how I planted this church. Why, why don't you recognize? That's how you were saved. That's how others are going to be saved. Don't be embarrassed by it. Be moved by it. Their problem is that they just wanted to be entertained. They didn't want to be changed. And I think our problem today is the same. So we should embrace and love Christ-centered preaching for what it does and why it works. Because the Holy Spirit's there, and he's transforming us. One final thing tonight, this sort of real preaching, a preaching undergirded by a determination to preach the Son in a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power, it has a destination, we could say. So there's been this determination on the part of Paul, a demonstration in the life and preaching of Paul, and it leads to a demonstration for the hearers of Paul, and that is the glory of God. This is what Christ-centered preaching leads to. Verse 5. So that, we have there a purpose clause, right? This is the whole point of this kind of preaching, Paul says. So that, for this purpose, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God... The point is so that the Hebrews would come to believe in God, not to believe in Paul. Uh, not in any human, not in any method, but in God. And there's something really, uh, did you notice that the Trinitar- Trinitarian flavor of this uh, kind of preaching? In preaching, we hear about the Son, and we even hear from the Son. He's speaking through the power of the Spirit, all to the glory of the Father. So any sort of attempt of human boasting falls away. Under this triune emphasis, God gets the glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because in real preaching, he's the one doing all the work. One of my favorite comments on preaching comes from J.I. Packer's reflection on Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great uh, preacher in the uh, mid-1900s in London. And J.I. Packer was... Uh, thinking about it. It's recorded in a biography on uh, Lloyd-Jones. They were asking Packer what made him so effective. Why was Lloyd-Jones such an effective preacher? And he said his effectiveness came from his ability to actually let Christ speak in the sermon. He says in his preaching, it was as if Lloyd-Jones slips out of the picture and leaves us with the God whom he would have us know slips out of the picture and leaves us with the God whom he would have us to know. Resist the urge to find in your pastor or in any preacher something that only God can give you, something that only Christ has done for you, something that only the Holy Spirit can apply to you. There is no pastor out there and there is no preacher on earth who can save you from your sins. There's no parent that can do that. There's no mentor, no teacher, no um, discipler. Don't look to any human being for the one thing that they can't give you. Salvation. Eternal life. Only God can rescue you from sin's condemnation and bring you to glory. Bring you to, to heaven. And preachers are just his ambassadors. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about glory. We're talking about the king. So don't look to the preacher. Look beyond him to the one who has sent him. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all our attention and all our affection For you alone can save us from our sin and can transform us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that uh, you are willing to occupy poor, lowly, sinful hearts such as ours and to do that work of restoration and transformation and truly salvation. And we thank you, glorious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ that for us and for our salvation, you are willing to be Christ crucified. We thank you for your cross, and we glory in it, we boast in it, for we make our glory and our boast you. Amen.